I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit LondonReviewBookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Uh, can everyone hear me? Can everyone hear us? Is clear? Can you hear me? Yeah, fine. Okay, great. Uh, well, thanks for all. Uh, thanks to all for coming this evening. Uh, I was really honored and privileged to be invited to be part of this discussion because I've admired Richard Sennett's work for many years. I actually read his book, The Hidden Injuries of Class, some 20 years ago, mm. and he very modestly gave me a copy today, mentioning that it was an old book of his when it's a seminal work that has really affected our thinking of working class life and identity. Um, this is a very timely discussion. Uh, the title of this book is The Foreigner, Two Essays on Exile, um, which I think is both a poignant theme for um, two Americans who live in Britain, as we are, uh, but also um, at a time of great political urgency and uh, foment uh, over questions of national identity, belonging, citizenship, and exile. But I want to talk, of course, uh, first about the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those of you, uh, have many of you read the book yet? Great. Uh, for those who haven't, you need to rectify that. Um, Richard, the book is the book is two essays, of course, and I'm very struck that they're both they both have a very clear sense of place and time. The first essay, uh, six, the 16th century Venetian ghetto, uh, which of course uh, was created 500 years ago last year, uh, and then the second, the the milieu of 19th century uh, France and particularly Paris. Tell us a little bit about your encounters with these milieus, uh, about, in particular about your first visit to Venice in the 1960s, yeah. and about um, your love of the painting, uh, The Bard Folie Bergère by Manet. Okay. Well, I'll tell you why this, these seem like two very different um, essays. One is about how the Jewish ghetto was formed in Renaissance Venice, and the other is about how a group of political exiles in the 19th century, um, gradu- mostly Russian, gradually took on the burden of being foreigners who had no place to live. They seem, in a way, like cheese and chalk. But what was interesting to me is that in both there was a question of how people uh, who are foreigners construct that condition. You know, we talk about them, the Poles, you know, uh, the others, and so on. But the others also have minds and hearts, you know. And 
I was interested in the way in which a group which couldn't get out of, of physical uh, 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 oppression, uh, namely the Jews in Venice, who were absolutely tied to one place, gradually constructed a sense of being foreigners and how they made peace with that in some ways and never made peace with it in the other, as opposed to a group who, as Theresa May would say, were cosmopolitans, therefore belong nowhere. It's such a horrible quote, I can't can't remember it exactly. But people who were free to move, but belong nowhere. And what what you'll see in reading this book is that there are, in fact, some similarities uh, between these very different times, very different places, but the notion of having to create a, a, a sense of self as a foreigner is common to, to them both. Can I say a little about how that happens? For the Jews of Venice, they, they mostly came there because they were expelled from Spain and by circuitous uh, water routes got, got to Venice although there were some northern Jews who were expelled from Germany uh, uh, around the same time. These two groups come to Venice, and the Venetians hate it. You know, these are hideous, you know, Christ killers. They're thought to, uh, to be bearers of syphilis, you know, their diseased bodies. Um, but they need them because the Jews, the, the, the Spanish Jews, were, were doctors and they learned medicine from the Arabs who were, you know, far more advanced medically than Christians. They also need the very poor Jews because they needed to distribute sort of petty goods around uh, uh, the city. They needed people who sold used, used coats who would uh, who would go anywhere in the city to sell you a pot and so on? They filled, as we would say now, a niche by being in this, this thing. So there's their situation. They are people who Venetians need and hate. And the way to deal with that was to isolate them in a set of islands. In Venice, in the uh, near today where the train station is, that's right. Um, and w- the way they would live is that they were led out in the city today. I'm sorry, this um, little essay doesn't have there are some illustrations of what these Jewish doctors looked like. They wore half. They wore bird masks and gloves and gowns and uh, so that they looked like these strange half-human figures wandering around the streets. And that was because, they, well, they were Jews, uh, but that they were dealing with intimate parts of the Christian body. So the notion is you weren't really touched by a fellow human being. You were touched by this bird man with this beak. So anyhow, they wandered the city during the day. There were very few, there were a few uh, classic Jewish moneylenders, but 
not so many as, as you would imagine. And then at night, they were shut in, in these, in these ghettos, in these islands. The windows all had to be closed. There could be no light. Uh, the authorities sent patrol boats around so that uh, uh, no Jews escaped from the ghetto. And um, it was as though when there was darkness, there was darkness in the ghetto. They were literally absent, absence. They were uh, completely invisible. And it's in within those conditions that they developed uh, a culture. They took on the notion of what it meant to be Jewish. That is, that you were shut in completely. Uh, the wrinkle in this was that the authorities who needed them would protect them if they stayed where they belonged. So they had place-based rights. You know. So long as they were inside the ghetto at night, those patrol boats would keep out Christians during, during Easter. Christians wanted to get at the Jews and kill them. That was a Donald Trump moment. Um, and the authorities would repel them. So I was interested in what kind of what what kind of identity that gets to be, where you you're gradually you think of yourself as ghettoized in space, and that that's a way of measuring how you are as Jewish, rather than what you believe about the God you pray to. You're thinking about where you belong. And there are some very sort of amusing parts of this. The Jews were the first great consumers of coffee in Venice because they had to stay up at night to study the Bible. So every espresso you have has a, has a root somewhere in our, in our past. Now, you talk about the... Venetian ghetto is a story of exiles who are indeed segregated against their will, but who then made new forms of community from their separateness and who acquired an interest as social actors in being segregated. Right. Uh, Well, gradually the notion of being Jewish becomes associated with living in the ghetto. And it's not just frou-frou culture, it's that they're protected, they're safe in the ghetto, there's also something that, is, to me, very uh, interesting about it, um, as with, uh, with black ghettoized cultures, that very different strands of Jews had to learn how to live with each other. Uh, the two great confessionals of Judaism, Ashkenazim and, and Sephardim, are chalk and cheese. They're, completely, they're not different religions, but they are chalk and cheese. And usually the way they dealt with this confessional difference was to avoid each other. Now they couldn't. So that's, that's what I mean. And that took time. And, uh, 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 so that interested me as against these Russian uh, exiles, principally Alexander Herzen, I was put on to, I, I just tell you a, bio, a, a little autobiographical detail of this. I was a great friend of Isaiah Berlin, and uh, he 
If there was anybody in the world he identified with, it was Alexander Herzen, and he identified wrongly because Berlin was, you know, became a kind of pillar of your establishment here. And Herzen, who was also a Russian exile, became a pillar of nowhere. So he and his fellow Russian exiles from the, this is originally from the 1825 revolts and then in the 40s, when many of them were let out of uh, of Siberia, wandered aimlessly around Europe. just the opposite, you would think, of the situation of, of, these, of these Venetian Jews. And most of them were, uh, Herzen was, a, was not a believer, but he was a Greek author. They were all Russian Orthodox or Greek Orthodox. And gradually, he began to see that being a foreigner is something you have to construct. You have to learn how to be, live with people who are unlike yourself, namely here in Britain, you. <laughs> uh, you had to be next to people, but not, never believe you could integrate. Uh, for Herzen, the great drama of being an uprooted exile was that on the one hand, you could succumb to a nostalgia, you know, that you regretted Mother Russia, just the way many young Muslims here who have never lived in the Middle East regret the motherland. That, that to Herzen, was a great, great drama. And the other thing was to erase your past and integrate, to be more English than the English. I had long talks with Isaiah about, about this, because the space of the foreigner set free from a ghetto is that space in between, between being imprisoned by the past and being integrated in the present. So I tried to play these two off in, that's what this little book does. Is this clear? Because we should talk now. I, I just want to... I am very struck by this distinction you, you posed in the second essay in particular about the nation posing a danger to the foreigner, on the one hand of forgetting right. the dream of total assimilation, the melting pot, as we would say in the U.S., yeah. and on the other hand, the dream of nostalgia, of the kind of the danger of remembering, as you put it. Yeah. What's the kind of correct ethical posture between these two extremes, both for the foreigner and for the nation I w- receiving him or her? Right. I would say in a very general way, It's about the notion that you are insufficient. You cannot resolve your sense of being in the world. Let's say this ethically. And that I think for any human being, that's a good thing to do. Being integrated, whole, feeling you belong to a culture uh, totally, uh, that you have an identity which is coherent and fulfilling and so on, seems to me a kind of ethical nightmare. Uh, and that the notion that we should all have is in adults is that that kind of fulfillment belongs to us as children. That as adults, we have a different relationship to the world. And a, a foreigner like 
like Herzen, had to do that. There are circumstances in which we don't. And you can see this. You know, people who talk the language of belonging and so on, it's a childish language. It's always eliminating dissonance. But the rhetoric of authenticity and of home, and as you say, you talk about, uh, a fascinating point you make is that nations have been defined throughout history in many different ways. You say at one point religious practice, aristocratic dynasties, trading alliances, as in Venice but that it was actually out of the 1848 revolutions and the romantics who kind of helped set in motion the idea of the nation as being uh, enacted, as you say, by the, its customs, its manners, its mores, right. its, its language, its myths, the idea of yeah. a Volk. And I think the idea of the Volk has a lot of emotional resonance. In fact, perhaps in a time of economic uncertainty, more resonance than it did. Um, and the cosmopolitan ideal it's, uh, it's under grave challenge. <laughs> it certainly is. Um, it does have a lot of resonance because it's a simplifier. Yeah. You know where you are. If you're uncertain economically, uh, you, um, um, uh, you, you have a, another rock to be. What I'm just saying to you is that since you asked me about this ethically, yeah. that I yeah. think that that's an enormous ethical danger. I've lived in this country 35 years, and still whenever I hear people talking about Britishness, there's something in me that thinks we're going back to school. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? We're going back to pledges of the heart and so on. Such a complicated country, so diverse. But that's a way of saying, well, let's not deal with that. Let's, do you know what I mean? I do, I do. I'm very struck, though, if we can stay on this for just a moment. I mean, I see Britain and the U.S. sharing sort of a historic embrace of pluralism, or or not having kind of an ethnos. These are not traditionally, obviously, very different historical trajectories. But both share, in my view, the terms blood and soil would not really fit. Yeah, in, no. in, and, and yet, these are two countries that have reacted politically with such an aversion, at least electorally, to cosmopolitanism in the last year and a half. Why do you How think do you, that... Well, no, I'm interested from you. Why do you think that is? You followed this... Oh, a, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, come on. Come on, you follow this as a journalist. Well, one of the topics that we talked about was, of course, immigration. Um, and uh, you make a point in the book that, you know, when Kant was, you know, theorizing about the universal citizen and, and the triumph of reason, he was writing really before an era where he, he could not have contemplated the kind of mass migration that's right, occurring absolutely. today. I mean, there are people from, you know, Syria making their way to Australia, right? There are people from Mali who've made their way to California. These are distances that are so vast. And also the movements of capital, um, the, the role of industrial capitalism. So I wonder maybe that yeah. but maybe that's the key that the difference say from now from when these were more receptive both Britain and, and the US were more receptive is that there's another kind of universalism that's involved which is you know Microsoft universalism you know neoliberalism neoliberalism and yeah. so on and that the retreat into into this into this notion of cultural identity kind of reaction to that. I, d- I don't know. Uh, um, 
It's it's a very curious thing to me about uh, the relation between patriotism and loyalty. Because loyalty, I think of as giving yourself to something outside yourself, whereas the and that it's something we do. For those of you who fought in the army, that's well, we you're, you're loyal to something which is not you. Patriotism seems to me much more self-interested. It's always got this edge of anger and exclusion. Uh, be very hard to imagine. Theresa May, I'm sorry, she has on my mind. It would be very hard to say, I am a really patriotic Briton, and therefore I welcome you to, <laughs> to a poll. Just, it, you know, it doesn't figure, there's always this edge of rejection and patriotism, where in loyalty, as in, in the army, it, it doesn't have that. So it's, there's, there's something funny about, about this construct and that's what the, the foreigner, particularly the stateless foreigner, is having to deal with. Always that edge of we, which contains this, this kind of little sharp thing, not you. you know? uh, and I don't think our parents, who were both foreigners to the U.S., yeah. had that as much as we have today. Wait. You know, we're, of course, at a time when more of, hum- of humanity is on the move than ever before. Right. We're in an other era of great migration. Uh, it's impossible to uh, look at the headlines, what's happening in the Rohingya right now. 400,000 people mm-hmm. being displaced from Myanmar into a Bangladesh that does not want them. They are another stateless refugee crisis. Right. Um, and even now, not to mention, of course, all the displacements that have occurred because of the Arab Spring and the Civil War in Syria and the state collapse in Libya and all that. Um, a lot of these, you know, you wrote this book originally some six years ago before, yeah. you know, this had become, you know, kind of front page news. Um, did you, do you think about the ideas contained in it differently now, given what's happened? Well, I do. Uh, I, I was ambivalent. I'm always ambivalent. I was ambivalent even when I was writing it because... Um, I've had another life from being a writer as working for the UN, which I've done for decades, which is why I have no hair. It's just a, uh, I've torn it all up. Uh, and um, it was clear to me that in some way, what the people we were dealing with in the UN, from people in the Balkans who went to Sweden in the 90s, to the people who were made homeless in um, in Lebanon, where I worked in, in after the end of the civil war, were people for whom, in a way, this was too much. This book. They were, you know, wars. Uh, ethnic cleansing in the case of the people in Sweden you couldn't say to them well you know find this ego strength in between either regretting the past or embracing the present you know that's something that that maybe for their children you could say it but for them the most urgent thing was the word safe and uh, I think 
what happens with refugees as opposed to exiles, who are people who have taken upon themselves to leave, whether they're economic migrants or uh, religious people like the Jews in, in, uh, at the end of the uh, 50, 16th century, who they could have stayed and converted. They could become what are called Moranos. Do you know what that is? You know, but they decided no, no soap. There's a very different thing from the, from the kinds of displacements right. that we're seeing now, in which I would say the kind of inner life that I'm trying to trace here is not as important as just hearing those words safe. What happens, however, in refugee settlements which turn into permanent abodes, which is what's happened, for instance, in the Gaza, Gaza Strip, uh, or in parts of um, Sweden, not in Stockholm, but elsewhere, is that these questions become, I think, in a way more urgent once people know they're safe. So this is kind of post-traumatic stress, if you like. That's the way I've thought about about this. That would make it a much bigger book. But Richard, at one point you talk about the distinction... You talk about pluralism in a way that's yeah. not entirely positive. No, really I don't like pluralism. You wrote, um, the liberal ideal can be degraded into mere pluralism through a particular application of this rule. Pluralism becomes simply a matter of defining the borders between communities, sharing abutting territories. Within each, people live as though they have never left home, as though nothing has happened. Right. It's a kind of live and let live. For most for most liberals, that kind of laissez-faire live oh, but and let I'm live. I'm not a liberal. Ah. <laughs> Tell us about that and about <laughs> why is pluralism a word that usually is bandied about quite innocuously or even praisefully? Why do you have problems with the term? Well, it, if one is a true lefty rather than a liberal, the notion about this is that you're provoked by the other. It isn't just live and let live. You know, the presence of somebody unlike yourself should be a provocation to thinking about how you, how you live and who you are and so on. And the idea, there's something, what really bothers me about liberal tolerance is it's really a recipe for indifference. I let you alone, fine, you have your ways of living, I have my ways of living, you let me alone. Uh, in the UN, this has been a big deal for us in terms of, of women in Islamic cultures. And, you know, when we say, not so good, huh? They say, you, you know, that what's thrown back to you is a version of liberal indifference. This is how we are, you know? Uh, so I think there's a... The moral relativism. Yeah, I, I, it's junk. And I think the thing about this is learning how to have those discussions where you say to people, you shouldn't be doing this, you know, in a way which is not saying you should live the way I do. And that's, that's hard. And I think that's what people are losing. The, the, I tell you, we are very fortunate in our mayor in London because Sadiq uh, Khan has really understood this. He's not going to have a live and let live regime. 
in London. He is he's concerned about anti-gay attitudes, you know. He's concerned about and uh, 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 Ways of suppressing women. It's something that needs to be confronted. But he's also been forceful in the face of the jihadist. Um, yeah, absolutely. Attacks. The same, yeah. same thing. Yeah. We're very happy. You know, we're, we're in a very good state with some, a politician like that. Mostly the simple thing to do is, you know, go, go live somewhere else. This was in our country, or my former country and your current country. That was a whole logic of segregation. Give them some place to live. And forget about it, you know. So that's I, I'm against that, and um, um, and all my writing is against that. That the somehow we have to be more interactive with people who are unlike our ourselves for our own sake. It's a way of developing a sense of who you are, your competence, ways of talking and communicating with people. But Richard, not to be too pessimistic, but are you perhaps setting too high a goal? Right now, progressive politics seem to be in a defensive position. Right. Um, perhaps the ideal of tolerance for many people is enough. Um, yeah, it could be, yeah. I, I, well, I, let me phrase it as a question. It could I be. Mean, you may be right. You, you praise the mayor, but to go back to Theresa May's comment, I think I'm quoting it correctly. If you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. Nowhere. Now, I think, now probably most of the people in this room see the part that's exclusive, that's that's excluding. But could there be, I'm being provocative here, could there be a positive sense of that in the sense that in times of great uncertainty, all this migration, neoliberalism, rising inequality, stagnant wages, that people turn to the nation state to say, protect me. Protect me from change that's too rapid, too urgent, too disruptive, including the technology side. Right. You know, and I want the the certainty and the safety of the old ways. You know, I think that's that's how people do feel. Um, Is there a way that they can feel that without it being exclusive, hegemonic? Well, I think that that comes. It's a whole different subject. It's what my new book is about: is whether there are ways in which we can design cities. So that people, just by the bodily presence, physical presence they have with people unlike themselves, not talking liberal talk about, oh, we must get along together, but simply being together, can begin to have a kind of comfort about that and a sense that expelling these other people is not the way to deal with economic problems. The tragedy to me about the Trump voters is that at the end of the four years, their economic situation, you know, when, he, when he's up for renewal, their economic situation is going to be no better. You know, this is, you know, I know what you're saying. I agree with you. How will they then channel the anger that might even be higher next time? Well, could be even it could even go that way, or it, yeah. we know that a lot of those yeah. Trump voters would have also voted for Bernie Sanders. So right. it's not quite right. an inexorable push to the right. right. But I'm just saying that the notion that economics constrains us to keep people apart culturally and socially, yeah. I think is garbage because it does nothing economically. 
These people are going to be in worse off condition uh, at the end of this Trump rule. And I may say so, the same thing. Yep. May I say it? Uh, the same thing here. Those people, are, those working class guys and girls up in the north are not going to be better off financially. But I'm by very the, struck by this in both countries. That all right, what sorry, are perce- no, I no, no, go no, on no, I love this topic. The, the, but the, <laughs> He's but it, such the, a journalist. The economic, but the economic tensions end up being shouldered. It's very in the debate over you know the the UK position of we want to stay yeah. in the single market and retain the access to. So I'm not going to get all technocratic and wonky. I promise. But in the desire to have access to the single market and the common market, but also have the immigration controls which is essentially what a lot of the Brexiters would like, and which Brussels is saying no dice. That's no dice, right? We can't have a la carte, right? That's essentially the giant difference. But it's very intriguing to me that in both the U.S. and the U.K., immigration has become the focal point for all these kind of economic, the sense of economic anxiety. Or am I reading the situation wrong? No, I think you are. But I would say it's a kind of deflection. Yeah. Hmm. It's, you know, you're projecting onto the other something that, doesn't have much because it's harder to do. talk about deindustrialization, neoliberalism. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Inequality, the role, inequality, the role of, of you know the real threat to people's jobs in this country is automation. But that's very hard to talk about. You and I would know how to talk. Can we about just it. lead a crusade against the machines. Yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but do you know what I mean? I think you're absolutely right. But I think it's a deflection from something that seems to have no, it has no language around it, you know? And um, as far as I know, there isn't any political party in the UK that has a position on automation. Huh. Right? Huh. Uh, maybe or in the US either, yeah. yeah. US whole I'm not sure that, yeah. I'm not sure people but, are talking about You know, about but it, yeah. it's a kind yeah. of, anyhow, uh, how, I'm, no, I want to ask you a question. How similar do you think, I'm just curious roughly, do you think that post-Brexit Britain and Trump's U.S. are in this, that they both have done the same kind of swerve towards immigration and yeah. cultural issues? Do you think that's true or um, is it different? I think immigration was a central factor for both, I think. Uh, obviously, Trump's wall is much more crudely described. Um, it, I mean, there was been a lot of crude language in both countries, of course. But I think um, I've been actually surprised because, in many ways, I see the differences between Brexit and Trump. Those usually outweigh, in my mind, because I think journalists are attuned to distinctions rather than trying to lump things together so as part of a common what, pattern. What, what do you think? Well, the distinctions are big. I mean, Brexit's fundamentally, in some ways, a debate about levels of sovereignty. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And supra, supranational identity. That's very, very complex. I think Americans' heads will explode if you, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, where federalism is complex enough for us, right? And then you yeah. add on the, the supranational or international law element of that. But I think the, the salience of immigration, you know, has been huge in both. I mean, I think the proportion of Britain's population that's foreign-born is smaller than, than that in the U.S. Um, but I don't know what that means in terms of economics. Per se. I mean, we all know that politics is about perceptions rather than right. about reality per se. Um, yeah, that's a really good question, actually. And, uh, and another question that you know, needs to be posed, especially after this week's election outcome in Germany, is, you know, what is the future of the far-right populist movements? Uh, and, you know, there was a wide thinking that a fourth term for Merkel in the CDU would mean triumph of consensus, triumph of reason. You know, perhaps the, the momentum for the far-right populism has slowed. But when you have 13% voting for AFD, big block in parliament, mm-hmm. it's a You know, it's interesting to me about, about this that for any politician, in a way, the idea that she would, in her fourth term of office, get as many votes as she got when she came in is amazing. You know, it's just, uh, it's, it's right. amazing to me she came in at right. all and that Schutz melted down. But the thing about this word populism is there's something very peculiarly German about this. We were talking about this before. People with so-called populist, that is anti-immigrant, anti-gay, anti-feminist statements, that tends to correlate absolutely with education. The less education you have, the more you have those sentiments, except in Germany, where the AFD cuts across social class and it cuts across education. So it's a different kind of reaction than what you have uh, here, for instance, where, you know, um, and I am a little skeptical. It's also true in, to a certain extent in, in Hungary that populism doesn't cut the same kind of sociological swath that it cuts here. So there may be different kinds of things using the same language, but but you know, responding to something that's I don't know that's a little different. Uh, of course, so my family, part of my family, are exiles from Germany, and I, I look at this and I can't help but thinking of a uh, hundred years ago. I but people, German friends, tell me not so. This is something. Um, there is no program, state program, uh, for this. The program of the AF, AFD has things like no minarets. What a thrilling legislative program. <laughs> no minarets, no museum. Huh? Uh, it has nothing to say about um, uh, old age pensions. 
It's against the European Union, but that's all it says. We want to take back our sovereignty. From and yet, Europe. that's been very potent. The burkini, the burkini ban in France. Yeah, the absolutely. Swiss are voting on yeah. banning religious headwear. Right. You know what I think it is is that when this moves from the realm of sort of cultural prejudice into politics, imagine having a, ban, uh, a vote on the bur- burkini ban. Six yeah. hundred French politicians. You know, considering the size of an acceptable burkini, and how so much of the face can be covered? Covered and so right. on. That's right. you know, and I think, according to my German friends, that's going to happen um, there as well. There, yeah. there's. I want to stop talking, but there's one other thing I want to say about this, which I think I the difference I see between Trump and what we the word often applied to him, which is fascism. Yeah. Trump. A fascist regime is a state regime. It exerts maximum uh, controls over all levels of the bureaucracy. Coercive. Yeah, Yeah, it's totalizing. Hunter Arendt called it a a machine of government. Uh, Its whole notion is state order. Trump rules by misrule. It's something in which not following rules, by not installing, I'm just writing about this now, about not installing norms and instead focusing, keeping everybody off balance and one Personalized rule. Rule yeah. to him. So more yeah. Berlusconi and not Mussolini. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Oh, can I steal that? Of course. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, you've got it. Anymore. My services come cheap. Uh, <laughs> I knew you were a good journalist, but uh, this is this is something we just oversimplify. Yeah, no, this is great. But but, I, but yeah. what that means is that in the U.S. there'll never be something called Trumpism, and this, you know, a doctrine of of what to do. But it's not because of his ideological incoherence. Or because of ineffectiveness, which are different things. Well, he ran his family business that way. And uh, it is a way of running a family business where the patriarch, you know, everybody is is trying to get close to him and so on. He didn't have shareholders to to be responsible to. And uh, I think he's just imported that. But it's it's a very different thing than what we think of as fascism. Which is the imposition of this? It, it's so good. <laughs> More Berlusconi than Mussolini. <laughs> I'll quote you. <laughs> it's too good to see. No steal. claim to originality. Um, we have about twenty minutes left, and I'd love to open it up to the floor and get a robust discussion going. Um, why don't we start here and then? Yeah. Ah, thanks very much. That was uh, that was riveting. Um, but. I, this is going to be an incoherent point. I'm, I'm, I'm actually a Russian exile myself, full of nostalgia, um, and I may... Where are, you, where are you from? I'm from Murmansk, up in the north. Oh, Murmansk. Uh, but, um, ah. Via America, come through here. But um, one thing I noticed, and this is kind of... It was an, a New York Times piece that was recently quite viral about the difference between two cleaning ladies in Kodak and Apple, and the difference between a Kodak cleaning lady in the 80s and the Apple cleaning lady now. And how basically it, it's a world of difference. The Kodak cleaning lady was—you you probably read this article—but she, you know, had all these 
rights, and she was treated as an employee of the company, and she got given training and education. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, moved into the business, whereas the Apple one is a contractor, and she is treated like a second-class citizen. Um, and and it made me think about sort of cosmopolitanism is the good thing about having arrivals, but also how it's how intimately tied it is to neoliberalism, and how how to, how intimately tied it is to neoliberalism. Is it is there such a thing of immigrants kind of ruining the curve and you know that woman in Kodak was a white American and the woman in Apple the new one was a Hispanic and you know what is it about kind of you know it's so hard now just to be ordinary and to have a a good life just by being um, a, a normal citizen of your country because you have to kind of and you, you know you you can't just rest on your laurels just because you are a white right. Englishman anymore because yeah. you have all these people coming who are essentially strivers and and there's a reason for why they're, they're exiles and I wanted to kind of develop that point because I do think that you know where is that room now for um, so you're asking two questions one can you divorce neoliberalism and cosmopolitanism and the other is in the formation of people who feel cosmopolitan, uh, where's their resistance against simply the notion that they're floating? Yeah, so so you know, Zygmunt Bauman said there's like vagabonds and, and tourists, and right. actually, it's it's the residents that are now becoming also vagabonds or tourists. Right. It's, it's kind of a strange turning turning. Did I want to say this? Okay. <laughs> You've wriggled off. Um, well, I would say about this that um, the peculiar thing about, about many migrants is that they can sometimes, uh, they're very entrepreneurial economic migrants, and that they can sometimes find a way of managing uh, conditions of, uh, of this other cosmopolitanism, this Google or Microsoft cosmopolitanism, to their own benefit. And, you know, the whole world of remittances and so on does that. But it makes an enormous demand on the self, which is that you never feel that you've settled uh, I have a student working on exactly this problem with Polish people who have come here. Uh-huh. And the ones who are able to deal with this pretty harsh uh, economy for Polish people, despite the Polish plumber who doesn't exist, but uh, the ones who are making a good job of it are people who are very instrumental about being in Britain. They're paying their taxes. Their kids are learning uh, English, but they haven't settled here in their minds. And the Poles who succumb, who go under, are the ones who feel that Britain is a destination. Now, the first are cosmopolitans in the Kantian sense. They're willing to uproot themselves in the place. The second are immigrants, and that's a very... Immigrants in a neoliberal economy. They want to integrate. They want to fit in. They want to settle. 
uh, and they get exploited. Are you expressing a preference between the two kinds? No, I'm just saying what my student is finding is yeah. that the first are much more robust yeah. about the way they live. They're much harder on their children because they look at this as an opportunity. Use it. Yeah. Learn English. Yeah. You know? Um, and it's... It, I think you know, in Kant's mind, Kant kind of had no notion of of uh, neoliberalism uh, at all. It's a completely uh, political idea about a, a rights-bearing subject that wherever you are, you have rights because you are a human being. You have the same human rights in um, Italy that you have in uh, in Germany. That's a Kantian idea of cosmopolitan, um, where which is opposed to the ghetto version of that, which is you only have rights by virtue of where you place. live, yeah. a place. place. But I think it's a really good question you you pose, and it's difficult right. for people. It isn't very easy to live saying, "Well, I'm here, but I'm not here." Uh, there was a question here, and then in the back. Um, the foreigner is about two groups of people who've constructed their own identity as foreigners, but we shouldn't really lose sight of the fact that the populist idea of foreigner is something that's also constructed, but it's constructed by a power Absolutely. elite. It's constructed by a power elite, and it's inherited by populist politicians. It has elements of empire in the British case, and in um, a North American case, it has um, elements of their history of the destruction of North American Indian right. pop cultures yeah. um, and can be seen very paradoxically in the focus on Chicano um, immigrants into the United States who really are the first peoples of that country uh, and um, been kept out by the more recent immigrants. But my point is really that perhaps you could say just a little bit about how um, this identity of foreigner is constructed. Do, do you mean how populists construct the foreigner? No, how it's pre-constructed for them. By, by power elites? In my opinion, populist movements take an already pre-constructed version of ah. from elements in the press, uh, from tradition, from ideology, and so on. Well, I, I really couldn't speak about this in Britain, except that I understand that an imperial nation would have ready-made a set of tropes about foreigners. In the U.S., what's very curious about this I'd be curious what you think about this, too. What's very curious about this is that for a long time, the U.S., uh, the, uh, the Europeans who settled the U.S. thought of it as empty. Now, when you think of a place as empty, you can colonize uh, anything. And it's only really been in the last, you know, half century, that the notion is a recognition that there was something there before the Europeans came. 
I think also the the fact that it was empty was a way of, of justifying slavery. You know, there was nothing there. The land couldn't be worked unless you had slaves. Very convenient notion. Yeah. Uh, and those are tropes, nativist tropes, but they're very different. You know, to say that. Um, it's an irony that the that these foreigners are invaders of something that was originally made by Americans out of nothing. It's this whole pioneer spirit, the notion that the, the pioneers were essentially genocidal, is only something in the last thirty years we we were actually able to teach our students. The myth uh, of the frontier. Yeah. The myth of the frontier. All of that, you know, American exceptionalism. Yeah. But it's a different kind of construction from imperialism, that these are subordinate, you know, subaltern races. It's that you're creating something de novo. Yeah. Does that make sense? That sounds right. Uh, there was, uh, yes, the lady in the front, please. I'm not quite so exercised about being a citizen of the world because clearly I'm Australian and I've had to travel for work and for pleasure and I've never been barred from going into any country. I even managed to live in England for about eight years. <laughs> and um, this is a great the irony of this, of course, is that um, I'm in Australia because my Irish, Welsh and German ancestors came out there at the behest of the right. the Brits to provide the you know the yeah. grunt for economic reasons or religious reasons and you know as an Australian country when we talk about what's so fabulous it's the indigenous indigenous arts it's going in to see the, the Red Centre and the fabulous multicultural country that we have. You know, the Middle Eastern cuisine here, the Italian cuisine there. Yeah. And now we want to stop the boats and make that somebody else's problem, right. which is just ironic to me. And that's why, you know, there's the lefties there are trying to make a change in that. But I wonder if it's just a generational thing and how long it's going to take before we you don't believe get that. to be people as citizens of the world. I mean, I, I, I think it's a global phenomenon. I think that's quite right. Um, and although I don't think the questions can be reduced to economic ones, I think some of the changes going on in capitalism itself right now mean that these questions are going to continue for quite some time, I think. But your talk, discussion of a society or a community that sees diversity as a strength is, of course, something I feel very deeply and take a lot of heart in. I think a lot of us do. Is there a question over here in the middle? Um, hi there. So uh, I just wanted to follow up on a question. I, I didn't get your name. I'm sorry, but the, the Russian exile. Um, you, you asked a question about whether or not it was possible that having immigrants into a country would actually make the lives of the sort of the average normal person who was from that country less good. And you, I don't think you answered that question because I'm quite curious about whether or not that could be true. And if it is true, then whether or not there's something, that, there's something in that 
that might modify okay, how you well, think about Okay, well, you know, this is a, it's an important question. I'm going to be a social science bore. Is that all right? Um, what we know about the job structures of, of native, so-called native versus foreign workers is a really complex, it's really complex striation. There are some areas in which the fact that foreigners will work longer hours and in some cases under the books gives them advantages. And those are principally in construction industries. Okay, There are other areas in which Brits have not uh, sought out the jobs that foreigners do. Every time you go into a Pret, you will see those are jobs for which there's been no job competition between native and foreigner. And there are some jobs in which uh, Brits uh, are not prepared to do if you go into the NHS, which I've been spending more time recently in than, than I like, uh, the job levels of the people from Eastern, the education levels and skills levels, people from Eastern Europe as well as from outside the European Union, are particularly in nursing, are higher than those from those within. This is not because British nursing is not robust, but that if two people are competing for a job and one is a Filipino who's got a master's in nursing and the other has got two years of nursing and they're competing for the same job, a trust is naturally going to take the Filipino. So that's at the low end of this. As I say, there are jobs in which what you say is correct in which uh, construction, uh, some services. Well, if I can add the Uber case, and I don't want to sidetrack the conversation, but one thing Uh, we've reported, just sociologically, is that the Uber drivers are more of them tend to be Middle Eastern, Asian, or African immigrants. More, the majority of the London black cabbies are white, native-born British men. I'm not making any normative claims. I'm just... Sociologically, it's very different. Right. Now, some might say that the immigrant drivers are contributing to a race to the bottom in terms of pay and working conditions. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of viewpoints, but that's an, that's an example, I think, of the, of the complexity. The gentleman, uh, wait, wait yeah. can I just finish? I, I, you've got me going on this, and you'll have to pay the penalty for this. When you rise up the occupational level, and you get to the level of people who have some kind of postgraduate training, uh, the situation is completely reversed. This country, like the United States, could not run a computer industry without people from India. We just don't train enough people to fulfill those jobs. And the top level of... Um, i give you an example in economics here. Uh, I, you know, I teach the London School of Economics. Half of our economics class is people from China. Why? Because they've taken, they're older, they've taken the time to master a set of skills 
which means we don't have to teach them basics. So, of course, we take them. So we are, you know, they're better, you know, and they're better prepared, uh, uh, and, um, you know, it's more fun to teach them. Of course, we take them. So when you get into the upper levels of the workforce, uh, the question is, and it goes to something that I think is profound about Brexit, that the, if all the foreigners left you, us, if all the foreigners left us, this country couldn't take care of itself. Maybe we have to train our own people. We should train our own people, but we're not. Nobody has suggested in the Tory party that they actually train a million apprentices a year or that they, instead of charging people money for university, they pay them so that we have people who can do the work. So my worry about Brexit is it might succeed. They might all leave. He's leaving on Saturday. Uh, uh, Not because of the home office. uh, You know, it might all work. And what would we have is a country that couldn't take care of itself. It's not prepared to do it. But might it have more cohesion? And might it be a more just and fair society for those who are left? Well, you could look at it. That would be very poor. Um, uh, It would have a lousy education system. Uh, If you happen to have a heart attack, you wouldn't be very happy about it. Uh, If you uh, needed somebody to make you a cup of coffee, you know, you can spin it out. You would have more social cohesion, except that I think under those... You you see what I'm saying? All of this language is, uh, we'll judge whether you can come or not. Uh, We're seeing this London School of Economics already. We're losing faculty because people are saying... Why should I stay here? It's a good job, but I don't know whether my wife or my partner will have any rights, what the status of our children would be, and so on. I I don't think a brain drain is good for for any country. But that, to me, is the paradox of Brexit, which is it might work. And then we would be in serious, serious trouble. Uh, the gentleman in the back and then the lady in front. We'll come to you. Yep. I, I think uh, a, a cosmopolitan consciousness, conscious, consciousness is, not, uh, is not really, so it's not specifically a, a, a left-right divide. I yes, I agree. Much yeah. more importantly, perhaps, is, is a, a geographical distribution of, of that consciousness. Um, I've lived in North London for 38 years, if I had to live in a Lincolnshire village, I would feel very foreign. Absolutely. And if you look at the the um, the result, the the, the 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 distribution of the vote for and against Brexit, uh, it, it, it predominates uh, for the vote for Europe predominates in cosmopolitan areas. What do you think the left can do to 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 bring that cosmopolitan culture into non-cosmopolitan areas? I don't know the answer. Uh, that's a really good question. I, I, I just don't know the answer. It is a cosmopolitan conscious is a phenomenon of cities, and most of us live in them. 
But maybe you, you can't develop a cosmopolitan conscious in the village. I, I really, uh, it's a great question, but I don't know the answer to it, and I don't know whether the left right. as such could have an answer to it. The one in the white shirt, please. Okay. Uh, I haven't read the book yet. I'm planning to buy it tonight. But, oh, good. Um, I, I, I noticed that you defined both groups that you were talking about as having chosen to live in another place, in a sense, or a choice had entered into the fact that they were in another it place. It had. Um, and I was struck by the fact that... Um, Unlike um, refugees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That so far no one's exactly, precisely mentioned an approach to the foreign, which seems to me to intersect with all this, and it might be evident with some of the, with some of the Russians, um, which is the, what might be termed the romantic approach to living abroad. I mean, merely for convenience, because it tends to become very conspicuous in the early 19th century, right. which is a sense that being one is most oneself when immersed in the foreign. That um, that yeah. it's that it's however destabilizing I'll it also is. Steal that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, what I would say to you about uh, the odd thing about Herzen, as you'll see in this, is he was a Slavophile, and Many of these people, the way of resisting, this is what, what, what Sewell was saying, the, the nation was a source of resistance in the 19th century against the aristocratic notion of a state formed by inheritance. And so many of these Russians were Slavophiles. And if they could have stayed in Russia... After they came out of the out of Siberia, they would have, but they made the choice that to leave, and they in that resemble uh, when we were working in um, the UN was working in um, in Sweden. A lot of the people that we who were refugees. There were actually exiles. They were middle-class people who had decided that it wasn't possible, Bosnia-Herzegovina. It would never heal. Uh, and so, and you know, they wound up in Sweden being street sweepers and, and cleaning toilets. But in their own minds, they were people who had made a choice partially out of a sense of themselves as being people who are not willing to live under right. in an impossible situation. It's very complicated. I'm sure that uh, among many of these Africans who are making this journey, that you would find the same thing. That they're not all people on the bottom who have you know left their farms because they were starving. Yeah. Final question. Thank you very much for this fascinating discussion as well. Um, I was listening to you about um, uh, tolerance, and I'm Dutch, so I was uh. thinking, yes, about uh, the relevance perhaps of a religious uh, background of culture, but that's not my question. My question is about progressive politics, which, as you said, are in defensive mode, and there was another question just about left politics, and if we think about it, I think there's only one European country left with a left Government, government at the moment. Greece. Greece, yes, <laughs> indeed. 
Um, and in my own country, the Netherlands, the Socialist Party was just annihilated or virtually. Right. And the general consensus about that is that there was a lack of um, long-term vision or, for lack of a better word, meta-narrative about society. Um, so I would like to ask you about this strange word meta-narrative and the importance of that for, for left politics. <laughs> Let's see. It's Which is, yeah, yeah sorry, <laughs> but maybe. I'm in the humanities, so it seems nice particularly relevant. It's a nice, easy question. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I, I, I can only say two things to respond to this. One, fairly simple. The, I, I think, you know, the left is in trouble because it um, it's not offering people a, a real social vision. And it's why I, I, I'm really, I don't like Corbyn personally, uh, but I think it's great what's happening to the Labour Party here. And um, I think what's important for us on the left to think about this is that we should have a, a vision of how a society should work, that it shouldn't be subject to neoliberalism, that it should give people universal rights, you know, just a cosmopolitan thing. And just because it's unpopular, we shouldn't give it up. And ultimately, I think that's going to prevail. It's, you know, this is amazing what's happened to the Labour Party here. And, um, you know, I... In Greece, it's also, you know, Syriza is something pushed from the bottom, you know. And maybe that's going to happen with you, too. I mean, the worst thing that left-wing politicians can do is try and capture voters from the right by compromising. That's a, you know, that's a losing game, you know. And... Um, so, you know, I think the answer to this problem is to be more radical. I don't know. That's just how I feel about this. I just want to close by thanking Richard for the big ideas, big thoughts expressed here, and to thank the LRB Bookshop, because foreigner yes, though I may be, I've always felt at home ah. in these four walls, so thank you. And I'd like to thank Sewell as well. Please oh, come you. and buy some books. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm.